Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Proudly supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute. Saturday, June 12th, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to Elders past and present. I'm Chantelle Alcouri. And I'm Sana Sheikh. On the show today, we'll hear from Backchat's very own Eamon Snow about his Walkley-nominated investigation on King Cumber Creek. And we discuss Aussie TV's most cooked moments. But first, we, we ask Blue Mountains local MP Trish Doyle if your long weekend getaway might be a part of a rental crisis. And we want to hear from you. Text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Snow covered the Blue Mountains this week after a polar blast brought icy temperatures across the state. While exciting for tourists and visitors, for those facing homelessness, it's just another challenge to navigate. Yeah, and right now the scarcity of rental properties is one of the biggest things driving people into homelessness in that area. To explain more, we're joined by Trish Doyle, local MP for the Blue Mountains and the Shadow Minister for the Prevention of Domestic and Family Violence. Trish, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Chantelle and Sana. It's good to chat with you, even though it's um, quite a, a sad and um, distressing subject area, homelessness. Mm, indeed. Trish, can you describe this renting crisis in the Blue Mountains that is being reported by members of your electorate? Well, I think not just the Blue Mountains, but across a number of regional areas in New South Wales, we have a growing homelessness population, um, a social house housing waiting list of more than 60,000 people and in certain areas waiting times for housing up to 10 years. So whilst we have seen an increase in demand for homes, there has been a decrease in um, the availability of those homes and investment in homelessness services has dropped. So we are actually dealing with a rental crisis. I would say that in the mountains particularly, there's the topography of, you know, villages stretched out along a ridgeline, like 27 villages stretched along a ridgeline where you've got sort of cliff face on one side and, and the railway line on another. Um, when we have um, a lot of our previously um, rental properties that were available being bought up by Sydney siders who were making the tree change, and, and so we've reduced almost nothing available. So people um, are sleeping out in the bush, in caves, um, where once people sheltered in garages and, um, and perhaps holiday homes that were vacant through much of the year, uh, renovations and upgrades, you know, knockdowns and rebuilds have turfed those people out onto the street. And um, I think the... the issue you mentioned is the temperature in the mountains. It's, it's freezing at the moment. So it makes for um, all the more worse of a situation uh, when you have agents who encourage rent bidding. So those who are prepared to pay a little bit more 
um, actually turf out those who are the most vulnerable in our society. It's, it's actually a disaster situation. And can the lack of affordable rental properties in the Blue Mountains area be attributed to, say, vacation rental apps and professionals moving in from Metro Sydney in the last year? Absolutely. So they're the, um, some of the stories that I am hearing from people. Um, I make sure that uh, myself and my team are available to, one, hear people's stories and to try and work with some of our organisations our community um, service organisations to case manage and and assist those who find themselves being you know turfed out of a rental property because um, you know one example I was told is that the owner um, decided to sell one of their homes in Sydney and downsize and move into their rental property in the mountains. Um, given that banks have a wait time of a couple of months for pre-approval. Um, there is no options for, for people. So with no, little to no um, rental properties available, uh, people are finding that Airbnb investor projects are becoming the norm and the tree change trend, which has been amplified by COVID-19. So pretty damning um, uh, situation for, for many people. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio 94.5. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Blue Mountains MP Trish Doyle, the Shadow Minister for the Prevention of Domestic and Family Violence. Trish, you're super across this portfolio. How does housing availability impact people facing coercive control in their homes? So for those who um, are in unsafe situations in their homes, there are a couple of options. One is to reach out to um, in the mountains to DV West, so domestic violence in Western Sydney in the Blue Mountains. There is two refuges only um, that sit under that banner. Um, the the difficulty is the criteria for assistance that um, families need to uh, be checklisted against. So if you are somebody who has a broken arm or a bleeding nose or a bruised eye so you can see the abuse, then you're more likely to fit the criteria for some emergency housing. If you're somebody who has been experiencing for a short or a lengthy period of time coercive controlling behaviour, so you have no financial independence, you are told who you can interact with, what you should wear... Um, you are basically, as, as the term um, dictates, you are controlled, your behaviours, um, your life is controlled by behaviours exhibited by your partner, then those um, criteria don't fit. Uh, when we have um, first responders like police who aren't necessarily trained in detecting coercive controlling behaviours, you find people trapped, as they often were through COVID, in homes that were unsafe. And statistics tell us that the most unsafe area for a woman and her children wanting to escape domestic violence um, is when they leave. That's when we see fatalities. Um, so, again, another dire situation. We need to have organisations, whether they are government agencies or community organisations, provided with the resources to assist. Um, so emergency housing is almost non-existent in the mountains. 
Thanks so much for coming on the show, Trish. Thanks, Chantelle and Sana, and thank you for deciding to have a chat about these really difficult issues. And I encourage people in the mountains who might be listening who are in a dire situation themselves to reach out, and we'll do all that we can to assist. That was MP for the Blue Mountains, Trish Doyle, speaking to us about housing affordability and homelessness. Don't go anywhere, because up next, we talk to Backchat producer Eamon Snow about his Walkley-nominated investigation into government inaction over the contaminated Kincumber Creek. But right now, we've got a song for you. This is the latest from a recent FBI Independent Artist of the Week, Romeo with Morning. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5. Last month, our very own Backchat producer, Eamon Snow, was announced as a finalist for a Walkley Award covering community and regional affairs. His captivating investigation turned the spotlight on King Cumber Creek on New South Wales' central coast, a waterway heavily contaminated by, a concrete, by concrete toxic waste. We caught up with Eamon to find out the latest developments in that area, how the concrete manufacturer the New South Wales government and the state's environmental regulator continue to escape accountability. So can you start off by giving us some background on your fabulous investigation and the ongoing concerns of water pollution of King Gumba Creek? Basically, I got onto it when I was literally kayaking in that very waterway um, with a couple of friends, like probably about 18 months ago, I think. And we just were remarking at how terrible it was. Like we'd come from nicer waterways and we got up there and went, oh, this is crap and then I ended up stumbling upon um, Corey who you would have heard in the story uh, he had a Facebook page it was kind of documenting this pollution but it wasn't getting any traction the Hymix concrete facility has been polluting the waterway for for what appears to be years and years and years um, and and more than that we found that despite it being reported um, over and over and over by the community and particularly Corey Hopper that not much is being done from every level of government, uh, council, state government, I think even federal government was notified of it, uh, and the EPA, which are the people who are meant to be protecting our environment from this very pollution. And what eventually happened was a fine was issued and they were ordered to remediate the site earlier this year, but the fine only totaled, I think, $25,000. Um, And if you tallied up the cost of what it would have cost them to have that water carted and removed from their site, the the wastewater over at least a seven year period, it would have cost them a whole lot more than that. So there's been this kind of general lack of accountability, lack of consequence for what is really, really serious pollution. The impact on the mangroves and the waterway in the area is really being noticed. And he's saying that he's been going out there now um, with a barge pole. He's been poking at the, the creek bed going through like a crusty layer on the sediment, which isn't normal at all. And beneath that, there's, he reckons, you know, one to two feet of like a, a gray concrete sludge. And that's releasing these plumes of gray concrete contaminated like sediment and sludge and water back into the creek over and over again. It's quite clear that there's been, you know, some pollution going on here for some time. And yet he still isn't really getting many answers to the EPA as to what is being required of Hymix to remediate it what consequences they're going to have to face up to other than the fine that we know they've already been issued. So it is good that the the majority of the pollution appears to have stopped, but there's still a a kind of lack of accountability, a lack of consequence for this company. And strangely, a lot of, you know, uh, secrecy almost from the EPA 
and still um, a real lack of interest from any level of government. I've been, I had followed up after the story went to air with local council who definitely had the power to do something about this over a seven year period. And they just basically told me that, to contact the EPA and that they wouldn't be commenting on this further. And you mentioned the EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Authority. And like you said, they are responsible for monitoring issues like this. What do you think their lack of response and action over the seven years of concerns says about New South Wales environmental regulation? The only conclusion you can be left to draw in my mind when I was doing this was that if, if you can have really, really clear evidence of ongoing serious, serious pollution to uh, a waterway which feeds into one of the biggest and most used waterways in the state, and it have really no interest over a seven year period from the EPA, then what faith can we have in them to attend to any kind of environmental concern that we have in this state? You know, I spoke to Dr. Ian Wright for the story and he kind of detailed the damage that, that concrete can do to waterways. And it's really, really severe. Like we can expect this creek won't be anywhere near where it should be, even if they start to remediate it now for decades to come. So, you know, these are the people who are meant to be having faith in to, to help us when the, these kind of events occur. And it doesn't appear that they have helped in this instance. And it doesn't help them that they didn't want to give us any answers or explanation as to why it took them so long either. So we, we're kind of left just to draw these conclusions ourselves. I would love the opportunity to actually speak to them and ask them what's going on here. And you mentioned in your investigation that this government has overseen an increase in things like deforestation and land clearing whilst environmental protection seem to have become less of a priority. Have we seen them take any action on this issue since? We've seen uh, the Environment Minister for the state, Matt Keane, come out and, and do some things that do look positive. But then on the other side of it, you're still having coal mines approved and new projects and deforestation and land clearing is happening. Biodiversity is still plummeting. We're still seeing species go extinct. As a whole, our state government really doesn't appear to, to still be prioritising the environment at all. They still appear to be allowing a lot of these things to go ahead. And I suppose when you look down the line at the EPA and things like that, the, the conclusion that I also drew in that was that, well, if that's what the government is doing, then that's a culture for our state. That's a culture for our regulatory framework. So we can't really expect anyone else to care. And as you mentioned, you spoke to King Cumper resident Corey Hopper, who was amazing and has been documenting this issue for seven years. He also compiled over 2,500 photos and videos of the pollution. How inspiring was it to speak to someone so dedicated to an issue like this? I have found Corey to be one of the most inspiring people I've met in a long time. He has been tirelessly at this since he moved into his property seven or going on eight years ago now. And he's sending literally weekly photos and videos and reports off and, and kind of like agitating at every level that he could. The longer he doesn't get a response, the more fired up he becomes, which is just, I think so amazing because for so many of us, we just end up, you know, worn down and tired, but he's just motivated and inspired by it. So yeah, Corey has been definitely a very, very inspiring person. And I think a really good example of what power one person can have if they push hard enough.
That was Backchat producer Eamon Snow recapping his Walkley-nominated investigation into a polluted waterway in New South Wales' central coast. And we actually got a message in from Corey, the Kingcomer resident that we mentioned, saying a tremendously dedicated and empathetic reporter who created an incredible story here on an issue that has been greatly ignored for too long. Excellent work and highest commendation to you, mate. Corey, we couldn't agree more. Indeed. And if you want to listen to Eamon's investigation in the fall, head to our Twitter or Instagram at BackchatFBI or one word for the link. And stay tuned because up next we're chatting about Aussie TV's most cooked moments after Conservatives got mad at the ABC for showing a full frontal schlong. But before we talk about all of that in its full glory, we're going to hit play on this one. A shorty but a goodie like me. This is Southwest Sydney rapper Hamza with Limbo. Back chat. Text 0409-945-945. They came bounding over. Hoping to win over Qantas, excuse me, Qantas customers. I'll say sorry, but I'm not taking on my glasses. Why not? Because they're famous. In important news, the ABC found themselves in a bit of hot water last week after broadcasting a naked guy's uncensored penis on Sean McAuliffe's comedy program, Mad as Hell. And the people, they got mad, real mad. And it got us thinking about what are the most iconic cooked moments from the last 20-odd years of Aussie TV. And we want to hear from you. What's the most memorable Tyra Banks level of outrage moment that you love from Aussie TV? You can join in on the conversation on 0409 945 945. Backchat producer Charles Rushworth joins us to discuss. Hey, Charles. Thanks for joining us. Hey, hey, gang. I'm honoured to be chosen as the um, trash TV scholar. Yeah. This is, you know, You're the expert, exciting. apparently. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Charles, what's your favourite cooked moment from Aussie TV in the last 20-ish years? Oh, look, like a fish that doesn't know the water, it's drinking. Um, I don't know, I feel like I've just been raised with all these moments going on. I, I think the Corey Worthington um, progression, the Corey Worthington story, is yeah. really important to follow. Um, we all know the, the interview, the party... Um, but I was doing some research for this segment and I didn't know that he like, has since got really, really ripped and competed on um, 2018's um, Australian Ninja. That's my favourite Where yeah. Are They Now moment. <laughs> and just, he I was it. looking this up, so I researched, like, where is he now? And he just is amazing. And I think what we forget is he was 16 at the time mm. and the level of outrage was blown out of proportion. So he had, like, I don't know if you guys know the story, but it was in 2008, he had 500 guests while his parents were on holiday and it was prompted by a MySpace invite, which, I mean, how much more 2008 can you get? He ended up getting a $20,000 fine from police, but it it turned out to be one of the best interview moments that I've ever seen of him refusing to take his glasses off. It was just perfect. Bless him. And look at him now. Like, Aussie TV has really looked after him. You know, he's gotten ripped. He's flipping off stuff. You know, mm. yeah, I'm very proud of you, Corey. He's come a long way. I just want to know how he explained that to his parents. Like, they went away maybe for a nice little weekend and then he comes back. They come back home to him having a $20,000 fine and a yeah. trashed house. He said in the interview that he just stopped answering their calls, which I think is genius. Mm. But, Sana, what was your favourite moment? Oh, there's so many fun moments, but I think one that really stands out to me is from MasterChef back in the day when they used to have Matt Preston be a host. I, I think I was in high school, so 
you know, everything is so much more dramatic when you're a teenager. And the moment was when Matt Preston just dropped the plate of food and that plate just shattered. And, you know, as with MasterChef, as we all know, they are iconic for having really suspenseful moments and then immediately having an ad break. And I just sat there in agony for like two to three minutes thinking, why did he do this? This is so cooked. Well, turns out it because the food was disgustingly good. But hey, you know, in the words of Cardi B, what was the reason? Why did he do that? I feel like it was like the best moment though, because we were all just so happy for that contestant because at the moment it's like gut-wrenching. MasterChef was gut-wrenching. It was bold mm. and the beautiful for me. Do you know, here's a here's a hot bit of background, guys. I was a runner on MasterChef, true true fact, for a while ago for an unnamed season that I can't name. But I, um, <laughs> I witnessed them testing the food, like when they actually try it. And it's like on this like blank trestle table downstairs in the bowels of the studio and they all kind of like stand up picking at it. <laughs> and it's like a very different like undramatic reaction with all kind of going like, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, great flavor. <laughs> oh, lovely. You've been on every show apparently. You've been everywhere and you know everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, I am the scholar. Yes. We actually got a text in from Connor from Camp C. I think um, Connor's talking about the chick chick boom um, guy. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That girl. Yes. She was very famous for a while. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. It's yeah. still my beating heart. Uh, yeah. Chantel, what's your favorite iconic moment? Uh, I'll have to say, like I have a lot obviously the Corey Worthington, but whatever you think about Carl Stefanovic, him turning up drunk after the Logies was great TV. I think it was his best journalism that I've ever seen and people were so angry about it. Um, but he ended up, you know, having to apologise and things like that. But it was like, it was so much fun to watch and it was like classic Aussie moment, just someone's uncle drunk at a party. That's what it reminded me of. Um, but also... Have you guys heard of the Teletubbies conspiracy theory? No, no, I actually haven't. Yeah, and you brought this up, but I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. I don't know if it was just me who thought of this, but my sisters and I used to talk about the fact that they were grown men who were drunk, just drunk <laughs> dudes in big outfits. I don't know if it's true, but it's my conspiracy theory. I actually believe it. Oh, so you believe that Teletubbies is shot... Um, not by professional actors, but kind of uncles of yes. camera members that Drunk get men. get loaded and yes. roll around the suits. Okay. If you that... guys know any Teletubbies or you are a Teletubby, please contact us. We want to know... Were you drunk and are you okay? Mm -hmm. Chantelle, have you ever seen Bananas in Pajamas, like the original version? Yes. I, how did you react to that, if that's your conspiracy theory with the Teletubbies? Anyone in a costume, they're on something suspicious. to me. That's, suspicious. Yes, I'm very suspicious of these people. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think also Big Brother, like Big uh, Brother back in the day. Big Brother, yeah. Look, look, we could do a whole you know, segment just about, you know, um, doodles in Australian TV. Mm, and I think yeah. if we did do that segment, then a lot of it would be coming from Big Brother, sadly. The, um, yeah, the, the, I was, you know, I want to talk about the Turkey Slap incident and it's just so dark um, that I almost didn't want to go there. But, you know, what we can talk about is Merlin Luck, who taped his mouth shut to protest um, uh, Australia's offshore detention program. You know, an, an unlikely hero. Um, but, yeah, my, my dad actually, um, you know, I am the... Um, bad TV scholar. My dad taught Merlin. And wow. so we used to watch as a household um, Big Brother religiously. And yeah, it was kind of um, after a while we had to stop watching it because of all the drama. But Merlin, yeah, very okay, proud. So once again, you do know everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Been on the traps. I feel like Merlin was a human rights activist we didn't deserve, but we needed back in 2004. Absolutely. And that's us ending this conversation before I start ranting about that. Um, this is all we have 
on the time. This is all we have time for on the show this week. A massive thank you to our producers, Charles Rochefort. Thanks for being here. Eamon Snow, Millie Roberts and Rebecca Manibog. This has been Backchat, your go-to wrap for news and current affairs. You can catch us again next week at 9.30am right here on FBI Radio. Stay tuned next for Limbs Akimbo. We'll leave you with a song. We simply couldn't resist playing Lords's new track, Solar Power. It's a summer single warming us up on this chilly Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs>